0: The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, 15 through 17, and 24 through 27. I would encourage you to follow along in your worship guide. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans, who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love.
1: Week six, week six of our vision series, final week, time to conclude the series. And I want to compliment Daniel and Todd and their wisdom for saving the best preacher for last. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, All throughout, I heard an extra laugh there that that, I didn't appreciate. That (laughs) I think that was a laugh at me, not at the joke. Um, Week one, uh, just to recap where where we've been and where we're heading today. Week one, um, we talked about Jeremiah's the call in Jeremiah's life, and we were reminded that we also have a call to be a part of God's greater redemptive story. And the purpose of the Vision Series, the reason it was important to establish that first, is because we're talking uh, in this series about how God has called us to be a part of pursuing the spiritual, cultural, and social renewal of our city. And and, and to not just be a part of that, but to pursue it with vigor and courage in our personal lives and and, and collectively as a church. And so in week two... We talked about Jeremiah's inadequacies, and it was important to talk about that because we also have inadequacies, and oftentimes those insecurities rob us of the vigor and courage that we need to pursue this call in our lives. In week three, Todd, he talked about the nature of reform, and if we want to see big reform in our city and in our world, we need to look inwardly at reform in ourselves. In week four, Daniel reminded us that that we're clay in the hands of, of the great potter. God, and that he's making us into something beautiful and useful to be a part of his redemptive work. Last week, we were reminded that we are sent into the world to bring about shalom, or peace, and that we are to seek the welfare of the city to which we are called. And this week, we turn our attention to a topic that I think is a big topic and an exciting topic And that is, is there anything that God cannot do? Is there anything that our great God cannot do? And as I was preparing uh, for this message, I was reminded of a meeting I was in recently. And in this meeting, I was talking to an individual who had been a part of new new product launches. People who had developed a product and they wanted to take it to market, and they wanted to get uh, people to buy it, to, to use it. And um, they had been through this entire process. And she had been a part of many teams that evaluated these new products. And I said, well, what is the common denominator among those who create a new product, but they fail? They just don't make it. And she explained to us, she said, the number one common denominator for folks who develop a new product and, and launch it to market And fail is because they are so caught up in this big vision, this grandiose idea that they have about their product, how wonderful it is, how it's going to change the world, that they don't, they they rush to get it to market because it's going to be world changing. And they don't take the time, the little benchmarks along the way where they can develop, test, refine get some difficult feedback along the way, maybe have people butt up against their vision so that they can really make sure they have a product that's right for the market or or that's actually going to work. They are so caught up in this grand idea of what this product is going to do that they blindly run out to market with it and they fall flat on their face. They're not interested in the process that it takes to really develop the product that needs to be taken out there. And I think that... That's important to consider because I think more than any other culture, and and I've worked with with folks from around the world, uh, over 65 different countries, cultures are different. But I think Americans, more than any other culture, love the grandiose. We love the big. We're visionaries. We want to accomplish things. We want to get things done. And we get caught up in big vision, and we're really not interested in the process in the pain, the discomfort, the things that have to happen along the way to accomplish that big vision. And so when we hear a topic like this, and it's printed in our bulletin, is anything too hard for God? And we read in this text both Jeremiah and God repeating phrases like nothing is too hard for God. I think we tend to go big, real big, in our thinking. And we love what I call these motivational verses. Verses that we lift out of context like this, and we plaster on bumper stickers or little cards that we tape to our mirrors, verses like, is anything too hard for God? And we appropriate our own meaning to verses like these. And when we do that, they help us to muster up the strength to accomplish whatever it is that we want to accomplish at that moment. I think there's a danger in taking verses like this too much out of context. Because in the reality, this is a very simple sermon to preach. Is there anything God cannot do? No. Not receive the benediction, But there's more to that. There's more to that. Of all the things that we want to accomplish this year at Hope, everything associated with Project Hope, everything about people coming to faith and expanding the kingdom, paying off debt, eradicating poverty, Investing in the social renewal. There is nothing that God cannot do. He can accomplish all of that today. All of the evils in the world that we want to conquer can be wiped away today. But I submit that if we want to appropriately apply and practically apply a truth like this one, the truth really is that there's nothing God can't do. Then we need to have three things. We need to have a renewed perspective, we need to have a renewed focus, and that will lead us to a renewed future. We just have to think differently about application of verses like this, and uh, I can't wait to unpack this with you this morning. Let me pray. Almighty Father, we acknowledge and know that there's nothing you cannot do, but Lord, help us to understand how we live in the tension of your almighty power And the not yet, when we see things that we want you to eradicate and take care of. How do we turn to you? How do we grow? How do we wait on you and be dependent? Lord, bring truth this morning, I pray. Amen. So before we launch too much, this is kind of an interesting, obscure passage. I want to give you a little bit of historical context here, uh, especially if you haven't been here for the first five weeks where we've really unpacked the, the book of Jeremiah. But at this point in in history, what's happening here is most of Judah has been carried away into exile in Babylon. That's why Todd preached last week about those who were already taken out of Jerusalem to to seek the prosperity and the welfare of the city. Uh, There was a remnant that remained back in Jerusalem in the city, and they were under siege. It was not a good time to be living in the city. They were surrounded by Babylon's army, and this was the case because Those who were in the city had elicited help from Egypt to come liberate them, but it didn't work out. That angered the Babylonians, and so they came. It backfired, they came, and now they were going to completely conquer them. Jeremiah at this time is imprisoned, probably in the king's court, uh, because he spoke truth to the people. He carried God's message to them, and the message was, the city's going to fall. That was an unpopular message, and so they imprisoned him. And so in summary, the city is surrounded by enemies, they're under siege, and it's about to fall. And so with that backdrop, we turn our attention to why it's important to have a renewed perspective. And I want you to consider for a moment, if you were in the city, if you were in Jeremiah's shoes, how would you have responded to the situation? How would you have responded to the words of God in the midst of the situation? Because I know what I would have done. I would have gone for the big solution. I would have gone for the big visionary answer. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. This is what he says to the Lord. Verse 24. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke, Lord, has come to pass. And behold, you see it. He acknowledges, Lord, they're surrounding us. You said this was going to happen, and it's come to pass. Yet, you, Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. So even though I'm surrounded by enemies, you told me to buy this field. And then the Lord speaks back, and here's what the Lord says. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And then if you read on in the passage, go down to verse 42. I know it's not in the bulletin, but in verse 42, the Lord doubles up on this. He says, For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, and if I could say this in bold font, I would, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Surrounded by enemies, It came to pass as God said it was going to come to pass. Is there anything too hard for me is God's response. I will bring upon them all the good that I promise him is what he follows up with. God says, buy a field, even though it's desolation, I will bring good upon you. I would have rallied the people. I would have gathered the troops and I would have said, it's bleak right now. We're surrounded by the enemies, but God told me to buy a field. I know what that means. Surely he wants us to conquer them. There's nothing he cannot do. He said that to us. He just promised me that he would bring good upon us. I would have made the connection that surely he wants us to go out and conquer this army. We would have charged out believing in God and country, and we would have taken on the Babylonian army in spite of being overwhelmed, and we would have gotten creamed. But that's what people full of faith do, right? We see these great insurmountable odds, we believe in God, and we get busy right away. We get to work, because there's nothing that God cannot do. Does that resonate with you? When you think about your relationship with God, and all the good that you want to see in this world, in this city, Are you ready to take it on and conquer it in his name? Are you immediately thinking about what steps, what next steps should look like? Or how about this? Maybe it's different. Does talk like this about about God's power and the ability and, and his ability to do anything he wants, does that make you anxious that maybe you're not doing enough? That if there's nothing God cannot do, surely I need to get to work to help him. Do you feel anxious that you're not engaging enough, praying enough, studying enough, whatever, fill in the blank, enough? I think that there are probably many of you who know exactly what I'm talking about. When we think like this, when we try to apply a passage like this from our own perspective, we make ourselves big, and we make God small. We say this is God's work with our mouth, but we believe in our hearts that it all depends on us. And all throughout scripture, the opposite principle is true. One of my favorite verses is Luke 17, 6, where Jesus talks about the mustard seed in the mulberry bush. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. That's a pretty incredible statement. And, and I think what we do when we hear that statement is we immediately go to the second half of the verse because that's a pretty big thing. Like, Could you imagine seeing a tree uproot itself, walk over to the sea, and just plant itself right into the sea? But the passage, and, and we get fixated on the big, but the passage is not at all, I don't think, primarily about the mulberry bush or the tree. It's about the mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? There it is. Oh, Shoot. There it was. <laughs> well, there it was. You should, you should really buy a jar of mustard seeds. I have, a, I have a jar on my desk at work. It's tiny. It's not about the big. It's about the small. There's a cause and effect relationship. There's something that is required first before this mulberry tree can be uprooted and planted in the the sea. And without that tiny bit of faith, the going small, the big never happens. We'd like to talk about the Red Sea. Pretty amazing story, right? The Red Sea parting. But we don't talk about the thousands of steps of faith that led them to the Red Sea. Or we'd like to talk about David and Goliath because that's a really big story. But we don't talk about all the little things the scripture tells us about David's life that prepared him for that moment to go up against Goliath. And if we're honest, we feel anxious we feel anxious inside oftentimes when it comes to our individual faith, our own walk with the Lord. Questions around Am I doing enough? Do you really love me? Am I any different today, Lord, than I was before I knew you? Change your perspective. When it comes to a notion, is there anything like this? Is there anything that God cannot do? We must first ask ourselves, do we truly believe that God can transform our hearts, make us new, make us different, and that it's his work of transformation and not our own before we even set foot out into this world to make a difference for it? Do you really believe that God is about renewing the hearts and minds of people And through that, making change in this world? Or do you think you just need to get busy and take on the enemies that surround you? There's a greater chance that we'll see the evils of our day go away if we will pivot into Christ and allow him to transform us first. John 15 tells us the same principle. I'm the vine, my Father's the gardener. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We want the fruit. We want the great movement of God. We want the sieging army to be wiped away. And that's where we go first. We neglect the cause and effect relationship, the principle that's all throughout Scripture. The vine and branch analogy is not about you bearing fruit. The mustard seed analogy is not about a mulberry bush being uprooted and going into the sea. Jesus is telling you, I am not interested primarily in your fruit. I'm interested in you, in our connection. And if we neglect this truth, even if it is from good intentions... Than any fruit that we produce is just fake. It's just fake. And that's why we have to think about a different focus. If our perspective is to, to pivot away from the things that are grandiose and big and, and, and have a different perspective on the focus of turning inward to allowing God to transform us and renew us, and through that to make a difference in the world, then what does that focus look like? And I think in this passage... Jeremiah gives us a very practical model to follow. And not just in this passage, but in this entire book of Jeremiah. Because all throughout the book, what we've seen is that Jeremiah has repeatedly turned to the Lord. His circumstances were horrific. He didn't set about trying to change them or creating big plans to change them. He sat in his circumstances. He sought the Lord. He implemented daily disciplines of prayer and meditation. All throughout the book of Jeremiah, you see this. His focus first was on his connection with the Lord, and secondary to that was doing the work of the Lord. The whole book of Jeremiah models this. He was besieged. He was imprisoned. He was attacked, ridiculed, hated, disdained by his people. His credibility credibility was called into question. And yet, because of his right focus because of his daily disciplines, because of his continuous turning to the Lord and refining and developing and deepening that relationship, Jeremiah repeatedly showed himself to be the true prophet. And the others were false. His prayers and his cries to the Lord demonstrate over and over that his connection with God was his first focus. He believed that God could transform him. In this passage, he made himself very small. He did not follow my approach, which would have been to conquer the enemy. He bought a field. He was obedient. Verse 9. And I bought the field at Anatoth and Hanamel, my cousin, from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses. And I weighed the money on scales. So what do we learn from that small act of buying a field well first it was an act of obedience and that act of obedience came from a deep connection with the Lord he didn't try to put plans out there for God he heard God's voice and in spite of his circumstances he continued to focus on deepening that connection his focus was not on changing his circumstances or or getting even more busy to overcome them but deepening his relationship with the Lord And second, it served as a model of what was happening in his heart. Jeremiah was was playing the long game. The future prosperity of Jerusalem did not depend on him. He realized that. And it didn't depend on his immediate actions of throwing over the Babylonians or the immediate actions of anybody, it depended on the hand of God in his time. Is there nothing God cannot do? Could God have wiped away the Babylonian army? with one sweep of his hand? Yes. Yes, but he didn't. So it was absurd to buy a field. It was absurd to buy a field when the conquering army is camping on it. When you are powerless to do anything about it as a people, it is absurd to do something like that. Yet Jeremiah was modeling for us that his role was to listen And take the next step that God was calling him to. And he knew that eventually that field would be fully his. The land would be liberated because God told him it would. It wasn't for 70 more years before that happened. But it depended on God and His timing and His hand, not on the actions of Jeremiah. God was at work even though the immediate evidence that they could see in that moment was not clear. God was at work in spite of what was going on around him. And Jeremiah was close enough to God to trust that and to understand that. He got really small. He didn't go for the grandiose. He didn't go for the big. He got really small and obeyed that small step. Did he take practical steps? Yes. Yes, buying the field was a very practical action. And we shouldn't stand on the sidelines and wait until we reach a certain level of depth in our relationship with the Lord before we take action to bring about renewal in our city. But Jeremiah did not do one without the other, and neither should we. And I think that's a mistake that we oftentimes make. Because we live in a culture that recognizes, honors, and believes in busyness, action, and results. Our confession today drips with it. We get so caught up in trying to make our lives work. Many of us are hyper-busy. We're so afraid of having you enter into our lives, Lord, because it would take us out of control. We don't trust you with our priorities. Do you see the parallels here? That's the culture we live in. When we lack spiritual roots, we sit down to pray and it feels like this. If you sit down to pray, and I, and, I, and I say this because I experience it too, if you sit down to pray and you're at a loss for words, or you try to sit in silence but you get anxious because it's very uncomfortable for you to sit in silence and wait upon the Lord, that may be an indicator that we're more focused on being busy and doing than we are with trusting that his Holy Spirit could actually work in five to ten minutes of silence where we have nothing productive to show from it except that we sat with him for five to ten minutes. Doctrinally, we claim to have peace with God through the finished work of Christ, but inwardly, I bet a lot of us struggle with that inward peace because we're anxious about not doing enough, and we don't trust that truly he is at work and moving in our hearts. I think it's time to get small. I want to see us mobilize. I want to see us engage the city. I wanna see us engage all corners of the city to bring about renewal, but I want it to be from a place of peace and trust, in knowing and understanding that I am being transformed and so he will transform the city, than just simply engaging. I think if we think differently like that, we will have a renewed future for ourselves and for the city. For me, it was a year long deployment, nine months of that, we're in a combat zone, and it changed me, mostly for the good. But I had grandiose plans before I left on that deployment. I had all these huge ideas of what I and God were going to accomplish together, because I really believed this. I believe firmly there is nothing God cannot do, and I was so excited. I could not wait to see all the things that God was going to do in the midst of a, of a, of a combat zone. It was going to be incredible. I was going to report back. It was going to be amazing, and people were going to be so wowed by all the great things that God would do in such horrific circumstances. But you know what I, what I learned when I was away from the busyness of my civilian life and life got really hard but also really simple? I learned that I had, I had no idea How to just be with God. I had no idea. Like Intellectually, I I believed that there was nothing God couldn't do, but I didn't trust him to transform me. I didn't trust him to move among my soldiers, like he was doing with Jeremiah. I didn't believe that he could do that. I had to learn how to be present with him. I had to learn how to be present with others. I had to learn how to see his movement in their lives and in the circumstances that were surrounding us instead of creating big projects that were highly visible. Instead of creating products that I could prove were the hand of God. I had to learn how to get really uncomfortable with moments of silence with the Lord, trusting that even though I couldn't see or feel it, his Holy Spirit was at work transforming me. I had to learn how to get really small. I had to learn new approaches to my spiritual disciplines. So I started doing things like meditation, and I started reciting ancient prayers, and I started forcing myself to sit in silence after I read the scriptures. And in those moments, even though I couldn't necessarily see the Holy Spirit at work, I had to step back and say, Lord, you are the one who transforms my heart this work of transformation is not self-transformation. I had to give up control. And had I not learned those lessons, I would have never been able to, 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 to experience and understand the small presence or, or the, the, the importance of, the, of, God, of, of acknowledging and understanding God's presence in the midst of any circumstance. I did not come home with grandiose stories to tell of hundreds and hundreds of soldiers coming to faith in Christ. Of how I saw his movement within our unit, and it was incredible because we put on this big program and X, Y, and Z happened. That is not what those men and women needed. That is not what this city needs. They needed a loving presence. They needed a loving presence who was rooted in Christ. Somebody who was being transformed and wasn't afraid to talk about the struggles of what that looked like. And they needed that person to sit with them as they wrestled with all of the things that they were wrestling with during that time. That is not exclusive to the military context. That is precisely what the city of Greensboro needs. That is precisely what Hope Chapel needs. That is precisely what your family needs and your circle of friends. It is not exclusive to a context. Jeremiah invested in a field. He trusted in the promise that God gave him. Jeremiah took a practical step, and it was hope in action. But it was because he was rooted in his relationship with the Lord and understood that the transformation of his heart was happening Likewise, he would transform his people. We have to create margins in our lives. We have to invest in spiritual practices of connecting with Christ. I don't know what that will look like for you, but you need to figure it out. Like I had to. Like we all have to. Because it's in those times that Christ changes us ever so gradually. And that is our hope in action. And as we're committing to this time of spiritual practices of renewal, we need to concurrently engage the city. Maybe not run out into it like I would have done with the Chaldeans and taken on the great army, but we need to concurrently take action. Steps of renewal. The things like Project Hope. It's a big deal. It's a big deal what happens on Saturday mornings. When you engage with others and be a loving presence. I'm not not just talking about the distribution of food or or the, the cleaning up, it is the engagement with others. You, them, and the Holy Spirit collaborating to bring about renewal. And when we do that, it should not come from a place of anxiousness in our hearts. Is this enough, Lord? Is one Saturday enough? Or do I need to do five other things to complement it? Maybe it is. Maybe for you that is. And that's great. I hope it is. But I hope it's from a place of peace from where you understand God is filling you so that you can fill others. For there is nothing God cannot do to bring about social, spiritual, and cultural renewal in this city and within your own heart. That is how we will see the city this nation, and this world renewed. And that, my friends, is good news. Thank you.